Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Before we get to the bulk of today's installment, dear listener, we're going to devote a portion of our time to some of the bustle and the gossip that's been circulating of late around our little intellectual junto. Firstly, we have a winner of our second listener giveaway. Please join me in congratulating Miss Catherine Stoltz of Norfolk County, Virginia, for being the winner of our second listener giveaway. Mistress Stoltz is the proud recipient of a reproduction penny whistle, as well as the first proud member of our leather-aproned legionnaire tier of our Patreon. We would also like to formally welcome Mr. Ken Krantz of Williamsburg, Virginia, for becoming a new member of our Patreon and extend our utmost gratitude to them for making the bold commitment to supporting the stories here at Let's Be Frank. If for anyone who wishes to pledge their support to the success of our little junto, you can find the means to access our Patreon in the show notes. As always, I am rich enough simply by your company, my beloved junto. Now, the second order of business, dear listener, is an apology coupled with a lesson. In our last installment, I made comments several times upon whistles and their composition being made of tin. I confess, reflecting upon it, I was suddenly fixed with a doubt as to what material those whistles were indeed made of. Was it tin, or was it something else? And so, my aim always being to present our stories with as much truth, integrity, and accuracy as possible, I turned to a member of our junto who just happens to be a tinsmith, and I was very glad I did. Now she had this to say, Dear Dr. Franklin, I get asked about tin whistles all the time in the shop, so we're always on the lookout for early mentions of them. We actually don't have a patent on tin penny whistles until Robert Clark in 1840 in England. The tool needed to shape the body is a tiny slip roller that won't be invented until the early 1800s for tinsmiths to be able to manufacture them. For me to hammer that would make it uneven and far too much work to make and sell them for only one penny. The thipple flute, or flagiolate, is the instrument the tin whistle derived from. It's actually mentioned by Mr. Samuel Pepys, and that would have been a wooden instrument with a fipple mouthpiece with a simple fingering system. Since your story about the whistle in your autobiography doesn't describe the material it's made from, which is usually what you see in descriptions to indicate the type of object, I'm wondering if it's most likely brass or wood, and would have been a common type of signal whistle. That would explain why your family was so annoyed with you. Instead of playing pretty tunes, you probably just blasted it. I did. Another cool tin thing you might be interested in is your honorary diploma from Harvard, which came in a painted tin document box. 
I found the Harvard College meeting notes discussing it, and the newspaper articles about them awarding it to you in 1753. I'm trying to make one in my shop right now, and I still need to study it in person at the American Philosophical Society. It's a pocket-sized thing for those 1750s coats, so I don't think you would have carried it around with you. Or would you? Would I indeed? That shall be a happy secret I keep. Our tinsmith friend also provided the link to Mr. Samuel Pepe's diary, which mentions more about the flagellet that we've provided in the journal of bfranklinlive.com. Madam Lynn, we're indebted to you for your information. Thank you for being a true member of the Junto and adding to the collective knowledge of our little endeavor. Uh, lastly, we have a question submitted from our Junto, our very first one. Our friend, Mr. Austin Menzer of Georgia, asks, Good day, Dr. Franklin. I'm a botanist. I would be curious to know your thoughts on the pursuit of botany. Are you acquainted with Mr. John Bartram, who lives along the Schuylkill River just west of your city of Philadelphia? Have you visited his gardens and had any dialogue with him? What are your thoughts of him? Furthermore, have you been privileged to have any correspondences or friendships with botanists in Europe? Your most humble servant, A. Menzer. Well, my dear Mr. Menzer, I suspect there is not a single long-time resident of Philadelphia who should be unacquainted with the famed Bartrams, the elder John and his son William, and their floral and botanical endeavors. John Bartram began as a simple farmer who, as the romanticized story goes, was working his plow one day when, at respite from the labor, was struck by the presence of a lone daisy in his field. He plucked it, and all at once was seized by its beauty and complexity. He wondered just how many times in his labors he had passed by similarly beautiful and complex plants, just as the daisy, and not paid them any mind. This began a lifelong vocation in documenting matters natural, plants, animals, everything that constitutes the field we know in my time as natural philosophy. He collaborated with Carl Linnaeus in the assistance of the taxonomic systems still in use in your time, and he would eventually receive an appointment from King George III as the Royal Botanist of North America. And the elder Mr. Bartram was a lifelong friend of mine. In fact, his son William would do me the great honor of naming a tree after me, the Franklin tree. I would be so bold as to say Mr. Bartram's advancements did equal part to advance the American philosophical character abroad, just as my own scientific experiments that have achieved such notoriety. You can still visit their gardens today in contemporary Philadelphia and explore the botanical legacies, the roots of which knit together my time and yours in the 21st century. The Bartrams and I had a mutual friend and correspondent in Mr. Peter Collinson. Should anyone in our junto wish to know more, my home, away from home, the Ben Franklin House in London, will be hosting a virtual salon upon the subject of myself, Mr. Collinson, and botany, information of which can be found in our show notes. Looking at these three little orders of business before we touch into today's installment, it leaves me somewhat overwhelmed. Our little junto, every day, seems to be blossoming into a community, a family, 
all fixed on sharing stories that spark the imagination and feed the mind. Now please, continue to reach out. Engage and make our little Junto the vibrant and energetic family it's every day becoming. Now then, with all that accomplished, let's begin today's installment. Now, for purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is about undesirable problems. It's about how we manage them, and it's about a boatload of rattlesnakes. And my friends, as we discuss America's road to independence, it's proper to examine the causes that inevitably led to our separation. Where did the source of these grievances come from? How precisely did 13 separate provinces, united only by common ties of British pride, suddenly find shame in those ties and pursue a union entirely different and new? The most common source of these injuries is the Stamp Act. However, I defy that, dear listener, and wish to push the veil of time a little further. We're going to explore several other events prior to the Stamp Act and perhaps rattle those concepts to paint a broader picture. Now, one of Great Britain's oldest practices in its age of empire was the utilization of her colonies as dispensaries for her convicts and prisoners. Indeed, certain provinces trace their very origins for being depositories of these aforesaid individuals, the practice began in the American colonies in 1650, and despite the continual efforts and protest from the colonies, Parliament continued to put forward measures to ensure punishment by transportation remained a viable option in ridding the kingdom of undesirables. A part of the problem was the surplus of people within the British Empire, who, without any structure of a long-term prison system, saw convictions that didn't include the end of a rope, end in whippings, branding, then the inevitable redistribution of the criminal back into society. Now, their solution to this was the Transportation Act of 1718, and from its inception to its end 57 years later, nearly every criminal convicted at the Old Bailey in London would be sentenced to a punishment by transportation. An estimated 52,000 persons almost 10,000 for every year of the practice, would arrive on American shores. The provincial governments of North America could express their displeasure, but had little other power to forbid the practice. Witnessing this, and recognizing our impotence to effect change in the halls of government or royal courts, I turned my wit toward effecting change within the most powerful court of all. And you ask what that is, why... The Court of Public Opinion. Reading the accounts of the rampant increase in crime, I would submit a letter to the editor of the London Gazette, and perhaps by accident, stumble upon a nest of symbolism that will carry us through the remainder of this episode, and through the trials leading up to our independence. The following is that letter from 1759. To the Printers of the Gazette. By a passage in one of your late papers, I understand that the government at home will not suffer our mistaken assemblies to make any law for preventing or discouraging the importation of convicts from Great Britain. For this kind reason, 
that such laws are against the public utility, as they tend to prevent the improvement and well-peopling of the colonies. Such a tender parental concern in our mother country for the welfare of her children calls aloud for the highest returns of gratitude and duty. This every one must be sensible of. But tis said that in our present circumstances it is absolutely impossible for us to make such as are adequate to the favor. I own it. But nevertheless, let us do our endeavor. Tis something to show a grateful disposition. In some of the uninhabited parts of these provinces there are a number of these venomous reptiles we call rattlesnakes. A felon's convict from the beginning of the world— these, whenever we meet with them, we put to death, by virtue of an old law, thou shalt bruise its head. But as this is a sanguinary law, a bloody law, and may seem too cruel, and as, however mischievous those creatures are with us, they may possibly change their nature, if they were to change the climate. I would humbly propose that this general sentence of death be changed for transportation. In the spring of the year, when they first creep out of their holes, they are feeble, heavy, slow, and easily taken, and if a small bounty were allowed per head, some thousands might be collected annually and transported to Britain. There I would propose to have them carefully distributed in St. James Park, in the spring gardens, and other places of pleasure in London, in the gardens of all the nobility and gentry throughout the nation, but particularly in the gardens of the prime ministers, the lords of trade, and the members of parliament. For to them we are particularly obliged. There is no human scheme so perfect. But some inconveniences may be objected to it. Yet when the conveniences far exceed, the scheme is judged rational and fit to be executed. Well, thus, inconveniences have been objected to that good and wise acts of Parliament, uh, by virtue of which all the Newgates and dungeons and Britons are emptied into the colonies. It has been said that these thieves and villains introduced amongst us spoil the morals of youth in the neighborhoods that entertain them, and perpetrate many horrid crimes. But let not private interests obstruct public utility. Our mother knows what is best for us. What is a little housebreaking, shoplifting, or highway robbing? What is a son now and then corrupted and hanged, a daughter debauched and poxed, a wife stabbed, a husband's throat cut, or a child's brains beat out with an axe, compared with this improvement and well-peopling of the colonies? Thus it may be perhaps objected to my scheme that the rattlesnake is a mischievous creature and that his changing his nature with the clime is a mere supposition not yet confirmed by sufficient facts. Now what, then, is not example more prevalent than precept? Learn to creep, and to insinuate, and to slaver, and to wriggle into place, and perhaps to poison such as stand in their way, qualities of no small advantage to courtiers in comparison of which improvement and public utility, what is a child now and then killed by their venomous bite, or even a favorite lapdog? I would only add 
that this exporting of felons to the colonies may be considered as a trade, as well as in the light of a favor. Now all commerce implies returns. Justice requires them. There can be no trade without them. And rattlesnakes seem the most suitable returns for the human serpents sent us by our mother country. In this, however, as in every other branch of trade, she will have the advantage of us. She will reap equal benefits without equal risk for the inconvenience and dangers, for the rattlesnake gives warning before he attempts his mischief, which the convict does not. I am yours, etc. This particular letter was not the first time I had incorporated the serpent to represent the quiet, growing impatience of the American colonies. In 1754, war with France being again apprehended, a congress of commissioners from the different colonies was, by order of the Lords of Trade, to be assembled at Albany, there to confer with the chiefs of the six nations concerning the means of defending both their country and ours, the delegation was led by a chief of the Mohawk, a Tyanoga, or Hendrick Peters, as he was called by us. On his arrival, he remarked upon the pitiful state we found ourselves in. We had, he said, in all our daily business neglected the members of the Six Nations. And when you neglect business, the French take advantage of it. Look at the French, Peters said. They are men. They are fortifying everywhere. But we are ashamed to say it. You all are like women. I am quoting Tyanoga upon that. As much as I hated to admit it, Tyanoga was right about our lack of preparedness. We brightened the chain with him. But it became apparent that they'd be no help to us until some greater union between the colonies could be achieved. After this experience, I began to devise the first proposed national government of America. Now, this pertains to rattlesnakes, I, I promise, dear listener. They would be a national government, composed by elected representatives from each state, and a president-general to be appointed by the king. Inevitably, the Albany Plan, as it would be called, was tabled. The provincial assemblies didn't adopt it. Too afraid were they of losing their autonomy. And England deemed it as faulty, due to a surplus of democracy in its practice. Now, had it passed, who is to say how history may have played out differently? But what was taken from this proposed plan of union were two things. The first, the eponym of First American, prescribed to my name. And the second a drawing I published to garner support for the plan. The serpent segmented into eight fragments, one for each colony, with the head representing New England. Below, the now infamous text, Join or Die. This figure would be resurrected throughout the years leading up to the revolution as a battle standard for American liberty, and both the necessity and merit of a united America. In 1775, I'll put forward another argument in favor of the serpent as a proper symbol for America. Regarding the serpent, I recollected that her eye excelled in brightness, that of any other animal, and that she has no eyelids. She may therefore be esteemed an emblance of vigilance. She never begins an attack, nor, when once engaged, ever surrenders. She is therefore an emblem of magnanimity and true courage. 
As if anxious to prevent all pretensions of quarrelling with her, the weapons with which nature has furnished her she conceals in the roof of her mouth, so that, to those who are unacquainted with her, she appears to be a most defenceless animal. And even when those weapons are shown and extended for her defence, they appear weak and contemptible, but their wounds, however small, are decisive and fatal. Conscious of this... She never wounds till she has generously given notice even to her enemy, and cautioned him against the danger of treading on her. Was I wrong, sir, in thinking this a strong picture of the temper and conduct of America? And I hope, dear listener, with this exchange of stories, we lay a good foundation for others to come. The road to independence was one paved with time, and with each little grievance— even years before the Stamp Act accelerated the outcry for American liberty, we see the warning rattle of rebellion with each royal and parliamentary step towards the lair of our autonomy. And what lesson can we derive from this little collection of serpentine segues? We all, in our varied lives, hold on to things we might deem undesirable, they may not be people, although, dear listener, with experience with my friends and relations, they often are. But all the same, we struggle and we worry over how best to address those particulars in our lives that keep us from happiness, fulfillment, and progress. We might take a lesson from the Parliament of Great Britain, and we might ship those undesirable problems out of sight and out of mind, leave them to someone else to solve and wrestle with by unloading them on those who neither asked for them or deserve it. Or, in the instance of the serpent, we might look at those undesirable qualities with a new lens. In studying them long enough, perhaps we might find the utility in them, the value of what they might represent. Perhaps, in studying them closer, rather than sending them away, we might find a greater clarity in helping us decide who we want to be. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. As we close... I hope I may again offer this solicitation. We here at Let's Be Frank are always looking for opportunities to travel. Franklin visited two continents and countless states in his lifetime, and here, in 2023, he wants to visit you. If you wish for a live presentation with the good doctor at your theater, your school, your event, simply write to the email inquiries at bfranklinlive.com and my associates will make good to set up an appointment post-haste. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. 
Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.